Good morning and uh, welcome to CCC. My name is Greg Gertis. I can see you guys didn't get the pink shirt memo today. Come on, it's, uh, we're coming up on Easter. It's time for some colors. Gary, Gary's got it here. Um, approximately six months ago, on September 3rd, uh, 2015, the Chinese government held a Victory uh, Day parade. And participating in this parade were, were 12,000 troops of the People's Liberation Army, in addition to 1,000 troops from 17 other countries, as well as there was tanks, rockets, aircraft, among other military hardware. The parade, which was held along uh, Chang'an Avenue, past Tiananmen Square in the Forbidden City in view of, the, of Chinese Premier Xi Jinping, and it celebrated the 70th anniversary of the victory, of, uh, victory of, over Japan Day for Second World War. Now, the current Chinese Communist Party does not, you know, th this regime does not, uh, they're not the only country that uh, enjoys a military parade. Actually, according to 2009 Time Magazine article, A Brief History of Military Parades, this sort of martial spectacle has deep roots in the past. Generations of rulers have projected their power through displays of strength, and awe going back to humanity's first civilizations, even to include the, the ancient Mesopotamians. And the effect of these parades is to boost a monarch's prestige and cement his political authority. The Roman Empire was masters of these parades. They called them triumphs. And according to H.S. Versnell's book, An Inquiry into the Origin, Development, and Meaning of a Royal Roman Triumph, the victorious general would make a request to the Roman Senate, possibly via backroom dealings and an overt public bribery to hold the triumph. It, it, it appears things haven't changed much. He would, uh, he would often pay for the tribute himself out of the money that he had won from the, the spoils of his victorious battles. And the victory parade commonly would begin at the Field of Mars, which is outside the city, and it would move through a, a, about a four-kilometer route, ending up at the uh, Temple of Jupiter. There a sacrifice would be made to the gods, and the general would dedicate all his victories and all the spoils that he had to the Roman Senate and the people of Rome. And the, the general would actually have the distinct honor of really being king for a day. He'd wear his laurels. Um, but since Rome was a republic... Afterwards, he'd have to remove those laurels. And for those of you who are, uh, have classic literature, Shakespeare, Julius Caesar didn't want to do that, right? So what did these parades look like? So some of the ancient modern sources um, describe these parades and suggest a fairly standard uh, procession. First, you have your captives in front of you, and, your, and, and the captives and their soldiers and sometimes their families, and they're usually walking in chains, and some were destined for execution or, or maybe a trip to the Colosseum from the bad, you know, not from the good seats, right? And then you'd have the captured weapons and armor, gold, silver, and, and exotic treasures were carted behind them, along with paintings and maybe models depicting what happened in the battles. And next in line on foot came Rome's senators and magistrates, followed by the general's lictors. I had to look that one up. It's a bodyguard, so uh, now we know. Um, I think we have one of those guys here today. In, um, in their red war uh, 
uh, war robes, you know, they'd be wearing that. Then the general, who, if you see in this picture, is in a four-horse chariot, all right? He's up above everybody else and looking powerful. And in fact, with Julius Caesar, they're holding the, the laurels above his head, showing him as king. And his officers and elder, so, uh, elder sons rode behind him in horseback, and his unarmed soldiers followed him in togas and, and their crowns, and they were chant, chanting, Io triumphe, and singing ribald songs at their general's expense. And the, and the rumor has it that behind Julius Caesar, his soldiers were singing songs about calling him Old Baldy, you know, a right that they had earned after serving him in so many battlefields. And somewhere in the procession were two flawless white oxen, and they'd be garland, there'd be uh, flowers around their neck, and their horns would be the gilded horns, and they were going to be sacrificed at Jupiter's temple. All of this to music, and clouds of incense, and the strewing of flowers. And in um, some case, next slide, the, the generals would actually have coins made. So you have a coin that you can give out to the people. Look at how great I am, what I've done for you. And a set of stone tablets actually called the Fasti Triumphalis, next one, it records 200 of these triumphs in this, over the centuries leading up to today's biblical story that we're going to talk about. The greatest, of course, probably being Caesar, in, which was in 46 BC, and it was spread over four days displaying the victorious Gaul, Egypt, Asia Minor, and Africa victories, and his quote, if you can remember, Vini, Vidi, Vici, thank goodness I hadn't, didn't have to learn Latin in high school. So, but uh, needless to say, what I want to make clear is that the people of this time period understand what a royal, met what a royal triumph was. They, they knew what it was about. There were lots of these that, were, that had occurred over the centuries. So before we get into our message, let me pray over, over the message I want to talk about today. So, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the people gathered here. And be with those who, who, who are not able to make it due to sickness. And may your spirit be with them. Be especially with the ladies on their women's retreat. May your spirit move among them. And may your spirit resonate among, among them. And, Father, thank you for the opportunity for us to share this time and this message together in community, jointly worshiping you. Thank you for the music that rouses our heart. May your spirit continue to rise our heart now. And in the words of your servant David, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today's Palm Sunday, and it's one week before Easter, and about 2,000 years ago, a lot is happening at this particular time. Jerusalem and the Jewish people, for approximately seven centuries, have been under the control of one regime or another. So it's starting with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persian, the Macedonians, and now the Roman Empire. And the Jerusalem is a city that's estimated to hold about 50,000 people at, you know, normal days. Of the 1 million Jews who are living in Judea, approximately they're estimated about 1 million Jews living in Judea at that time. And the occupying Roman force is forcing their Jewish tributes to pay just a really heavy tax which made for tense relationships in that area. And to control the people, the Romans would set up puppet kings like Herod and maintain a military presence. And that estimated presence was about 3,000 soldiers. And they would employ Jewish tax collectors like 
the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. They would hire locals to do their dirty work. The Pharisees at that time were the ruling Jewish political, legal, religious party. And according to uh, historian Josephus, there was maybe 6,000 of them. So they had a very strong presence as well. And, th- and Jesus at this time, we're about three years that he's been ministering. And it's now coming to a climax. He's headed straight for Jerusalem on a triumphal entry, and it's going to lead him right to the temple. So let's read. There's, this, this account is actually in all four Gospels, but we're going to read from the book of Luke. I think it's the most comprehensive one. And it's 20, uh, 20 verses, and I want you to just listen and pay attention to what's going on as Luke uh, retells the story. So after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Beth. Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying this colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day that what would bring you peace, and now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on all sides. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will, will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. So as we can see, Christ's entry into Jerusalem has many attributes of a royal triumph. Let's let's look at some of these. The distance he covers is about the same. It's actually about four kilometers from Bethpage, Bethany, into the city of Jerusalem. So it's about the same distance of Roman uh, uh, triumph. He's riding into the capital city, just like you did on a Roman triumph, into the capital city, and he's heading towards the main temple. In their case, they went to the temple of Jupiter, and here, the temple of Jerusalem. Throngs of people are following him, his disciples who are with him, and the massive crowds coming out of the city are converging on the route to witness this, this, this incredible event. People are lining the streets and to see what's happening. The energy's building, and they begin putting their cloaks down and, and laying down palm branches. And doing this, this is actually um, spreading garments before a dignitary was a symbol of submission. If we read in 2 Kings 9.13, 
They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. They blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So this is something that was you did for a king. Additionally, palm branches also represented um, a token of victory. So we're showing this is a victorious king coming in. People are singing and crying out to Jesus. And what are they saying? We read it just earlier in Psalm 118. Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. And blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is all straight out of Psalm 118. And it's a hymn of thanksgiving. I highly recommend that it, today or this week that you read Psalm 118. It's a very powerful psalm. But this is really where... The similarities end between a royal, a Roman triumph and Christ's triumph. And I'm going to bring it to you. I've got four points. And I met with a couple of my buddies a couple nights ago, and they said we should call it a 4D. We're going to bring you this to you in four Ds. All right? So the first one, Jesus is a king who acts deliberately. Jesus is a king who demands a decision. Jesus is a king who offers us deliverance. And Jesus is a king who holds our destiny. So first, he's a king of deliberate acts. Christ's ministry started three years ago, or three years prior to this event. And for the most point, part of his ministry, he avoided major public confrontations. But this is all about to change. He's no longer pulling punches he's on who he is and why he came. First of all, in the recent days leading up, as he's coming from Jerusalem along the way, he's telling his disciples, hey, I'm going to be crucified, and, he's, and I'm, going to, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise again from the dead. He's telling his disciples this. A blind man calls out to him and says, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, have mercy on me. This title, son of David, is the title specific for the Messiah, and yet Jesus does not rebuke him. He accepts that title of being the Messiah. He's also just recently raised his friend Lazarus from the grave. This is just before he starts this triumphal entry. He, we, we hear in the story in, um, in John 11 that Lazarus has died. They've called for Jesus and he still waits two days before he shows up. This is not like the sick girl or any of the other times when he's raised somebody. This person has been in a grave and... and, and for a couple days, and he calls him out. He's doing marvelous miracles right now. He's also waited to the Passover. And according to historians, those million Jews that are in Judea and from other areas are all coming into Jerusalem. So it's kind of like being at Tiananmen Square for the October holiday, right? If you've ever been there and you have all these people all coming in at once from all different areas... He also refers to himself as Lord coming into this. He, he tells his disciples, hey, the Lord needs this colt. And so they, send, they go out to get the colt. He refers to himself as the Lord. And, and why a colt? Why does he send them out to get a colt? Why went a, a triumph for a triumph? Why wouldn't he get a war horse or a chariot? Well, first a donkey represented he was a king of peace. In 1 Kings 1, 33-34, King David said, Take your Lord's servant with you, and have Solomon my son mount on my mule, and take him down to Gihon. Then have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. So this is, King 
Jesus is showing himself as a humble servant coming in as a king, but a, a prince of peace and not a war, not a war, uh, warring king. Second, according to the scriptures, Christ has fulfilled about 300 prophecies. And one of those is a 500-year-old prophecy that's found in the book of Zechariah. That probably for the last 500 years really didn't make a whole lot of sense. And in Zechariah it reads, 9, 9 through 10, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughters, Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bowl will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Actually, the word colt is mentioned about 15 times in the Bible. And every reference I found, except for one in Job, which is an odd reference, all point to this one moment, that this colt that Jesus is going to ride on. The other thing is it's an un, it says it's an unridden colt. So I don't know if you, many of you have experience with animals, but before you can ride any animal, or I even have my dog, putting, a, putting that collar on him and putting on a leash for the first time, he, tow, he pulled and he didn't like that at all. And a, a, an animal must be broken before you can, you can ride it. Yet Christ is on an unridden colt, young colt, riding through throngs of people who are throwing things in front of it and cheering and yelling. So it's, it's showing Christ just his, his um, divine power at this point of even the creatures that are around him. And his final deliberate act in the triumphal entry is he goes directly to the temple. And it's not like the Roman generals to go sacrifice to, to Jupiter, the god Jupiter. Christ doesn't need to say He's never sacrificed this whole time. He is sinless. There's no reason for him to sacrifice. Actually, what, he's, what does he do instead? He flips over the tables, and he's making it clear, I'm going to turn the world upside down here. His actions, of Tim Keller, Tim Keller would say, are confrontational and counterintuitive. Yet, they are very deliberate in action. He has very deliberate actions he's taking. He, he's saying, my time has come, and I'm... I'm meeting all these prophecies that have been about this Messiah who's going to come. The second point is he's a king who demands decision. And here we see four different um, reactions to his, triumph his triumphal entry. The first one is his disciples. You know, they're captivated by Jesus. And, and they're probably saying, thank you, Jehovah. You know, you're going to finally do, we've been watching you for the last two years. Um, you've... The blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk. The dead have risen. You've cast out demons into darkness and controlled the seas with a single, with a single word. And, and then it starts to get messy for them in the, in the week coming up. And, most, and they all run away. But though in the end, they all return to him. So we see how the, the disciples end up coming back to him. And I think Thomas has the best way of what he says to Christ after this all, all happens. And he says, in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. So that's the disciples' reaction. The multitudes, they call out to him for salvation from their personal oppression. They're tired of Roman taxation and governing. This Jesus of Nazareth, who we've all heard stories about, 
has mighty miracles, and maybe this guy who has all these mighty miracles can also overthrow the Roman, Roman, our Roman oppressors and lead us into victory. And they're crying out, again, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees, who are the ruling Jewish party, what's, they're condemning Jesus. They've been plotting to kill him for a long time now. And in fact, in Luke 13, 31, it's odd. They don't want him coming into the city at all. There's a, there's a, a verse that says, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now, this doesn't make sense at all because the Pharisees wanted him dead anyways. What some um, scholars interpret is the scriptures, the Pharisees know the prophecy of the Messiah coming in. They don't want it to be Jesus. They don't want it to be this guy. He's done everything that they are, they do not like his popularity. And remember also how the Roman general had to ask permission from the, the from the Senate to come in and have a triumph, he never asked for permission. He decided, he's, this is my mission. This is what the Lord has set for me, and he's coming in. And the Pharisees are furious, and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. What are you doing? And this is where we see some great theology, but also biblical humor. And Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. You cannot stop this from happening. I'm going into this city. I'm going to go to the temple. I've been called to do this. This is what it is all about. And even the stones will cry out if you try to stop these people. And finally, the Romans. And I think a lot of us can be like the Romans. Well, the Romans are caught in a dilemma. And they're trying to stay politically neutral on this one, right? On one hand... They close their eyes and they treat him, well, hey, he's just, some, he's just some guy riding in on a little donkey and he's coming in. He's not a general. And, and my guess is, no, the, the, the Romans were thinking at this time, they're like, I just don't understand these people. They are not civilized. I don't know what they're doing here. And this is probably what's going through their mind. On the other hand, they don't want an uprising. And if they're 3,000 soldiers and they've got their political movements that they can maintain that city when it's 50,000 people, well, if it's a half a million to a million people who are all riled up, they're kind of nervous. And actually, their political neutrality position changes to fear, and they succumb to pressure in the end and follow through with crucifying him. So the third point is he's a king of deliverance. It says in Luke 19, 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And this is the second time in the Bible where we, we read about Jesus weeping. The previous time was when his friend Lazarus had died, but the Greek word at there is different. And so he was crying, he was, he was sad that his, he was having, this was, had, had occurred, but he was weeping softly. The word that's used here is kleo, and it's used a couple other times in the Bible. And it's the same word when they talk Peter after he realizes he just betrayed his Lord. And it's the same weeping that Mary had when she saw that the tomb was, that, that her Lord was dead. This is a, an utter tearing apart of your soul type of crying. It's, you can't hold it in anymore. It is, you're bursting out in tears. 
And so Christ is on his triumphal entry. And people are screaming, you know, yelling, Hosanna, Lord, save us. You know, blessed is the king. And yet he's wailing in tears on this donkey. And is he weeping for his own condition that's going to occur as he goes into the city and he knows what's going to happen? No, he's not weeping for his own condition. He hasn't come to save these people from their immediate problem. You know, he sees that they're missing the point. He came to save them from a bigger problem, and that's not just them but us, the burden of sin. And we sang about the burden of sin. And he's offering them salvation through his upcoming death and resurrection, and all they want him to do is handle my immediate problem. If you can handle this immediate problem of the Romans. But see, Christ didn't come to make things right politically. He came because he wants you and me to be right with the Father. In Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So our fourth point is finally he is a king that holds our destiny. That same king who fulfilled over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament, even a 500-year-old prophecy of riding in on a colt, that same king who, while on his triumphal entry, was wailing because of the blindness of those around him. That same king who said, rocks are going to cry out if you make these people quiet. The same king will return one day, but the triumph, his second triumphal entry is going to look a little bit different. And we read about it, actually, in Revelations 19, 11 through 16. And John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So let's, let's recap what my four points are and, and see how does that affect us today in Beijing, in this where we're at now. I mean, it's great that 2,000 years ago he rode in on a donkey, but what does that mean to us today? So he's a king who acts deliberately. Whether we want to admit it or not, God places events in our lives deliberately that are designed specifically to deepen our relationship with him. And I, and I know from experience that sometimes these events just don't make sense. And sometimes these events are really painful and uncomfortable and, and highly unenjoyable. And it's like even riding in on a colt. That doesn't make sense, right? And the only way to understand some of the things he does in our lives is to have a long-term view. And God really is the only one with that long of a term, that long of a view. And so it requires faith on our parts. If you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, he's taking deliberate actions. He's a deliberate, he acts deliberately. He's taking deliberate actions to work in your life to bring him to you to him. 
If you've fallen away, he's taking deliberate actions right now to bring you closer to him. If you've become stale in your walk with him, he's taking deliberate actions to make you a more vibrant follower. For all of us, he's taking deliberate actions because he wants a deeper relationship with us. But he also calls on us to make deliberate actions as well. And he requires us to walk by faith. And sometimes it's just confusing and, and difficult, but he's asking us to walk by faith and trust him. So what about being a God who demands a decision? See, you can't opt out of this. This is one decision in life you can't opt out of. There are pl plenty of decisions we, like the Romans, choose to be politically neutral on. But Jesus is not one of them. And in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It just doesn't get any simpler than that. So we cannot avoid this decision. So you have a decision to make. Will you be like the Pharisees who condemn him, or like the Romans who try to ignore him but then end up having to act to crucify him? Will you be like the multitudes when you are getting your way, you know, you're all happy when you're getting your way and you believe everything's going to be fixed? In the end, you're crying, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Or are you going to be like the disciples, which is a lot, I think, most of us here, where... You're not always getting it right. We're not always getting it right. The disciples didn't get it right a lot very often. But in the end, again, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He got it right in the end. And all those disciples did. To the fact where they even, they took it, it ended up costing them their lives. He's also a king who offers deliverance. Christ does not promise us deliverance from all of our problems. He promises to deliver us from the judgment of Father. The breaking of law requires a payment. A payment has to be paid. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid that debt in full. Do I believe that by following Christ, I will have a better life on earth? Actually, yes. You know, it feels pretty good to lay down my own burdens. Um, and knowing that there's a promise of eternal life. But it doesn't necessarily mean that all my problems are going to go away. And this week has had its share of them. I'm physically and, and uh, mentally tired. But the Spirit of the Lord is keeping me up here today. And so I know He's with me and the tr struggles that I deal with as well as you guys. He does offer deliverance. And finally, He's the King who holds our destiny. So Christ fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Even a prophecy of riding in on a colt. But the prophecies don't end with the first coming. In fact, Scripture says he will come again. And next time, it's going to be on, it'll look, I think, a lot more like that Roman chariot that we saw in the earlier picture. With the, except on the front, it's going to say, King of kings and Lord of lords. So, can we pray? Thank you, Father, for your message here today. Thank you for Palm Sunday. Thank you for showing us how to be a humble servant through your example. Lord, work within our lives and give us strength to take deliberate actions to serve you, to have faith, to, have decision, to make decisions like the disciples to follow you. Let us be forever grateful for deliverance you offered us by taking on our burden of sin. And let us look forward to the destiny you have promised. Bless us all for being here today and listening to your word.
Jesus' precious name, amen.